everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Where can you get the best medical information anytime, anywhere? Right here on The Smartest Doctor in the Room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. You know, four years ago when I started this podcast, I decided to name it The Smartest Doctor in the Room, a bit tongue-in-cheek, because it seemed everybody's always looking to find the smartest doctor or the best doctor, sort of implying that all doctors are not equal. And I guess in reality, if we all think about it, in all other areas, in sports, musicians, even our plumbers, there are some guys that are really good at what they do and some that are average and some not so good. So uh, it's understandable if people are wanting to look for you know, a star as their doctor or at least somebody who's really good at what they do. Ironically, today's guests, Dr. Anupam Jenna and Dr. Christopher Warsham, have actually researched the aspects of this idea uh, and the sort of unexpected forces that can affect patient care. Their book that was recently released, The Random Acts of Medicine, The Hidden Forces That Sway Doctors, Impact Patients, and Shape Our Health, really take a deep dive into some of these really interesting issues. Uh, and it's really like the medical equivalent of the work of Stephen Levitt, who's of Freakonomics fame who's always looking at you know, things that people sort of assume but may not be true, and that I think we're going to find today. Um, so I'm really looking forward to this discussion. I think their research is interesting. Um, I think I like to also you know, dive in a little deeper what they really think about you know, and how they choose physicians for their own family uh, and you know, who they go to. So I'm really excited to welcome Dr. Anapam Jenna and Dr. Christopher Warsham to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having us. All right. So you guys could, you know, either take turns, decide who wants to dive in. You know, one of the things, uh, and I'm looking at the Wall Street Journal uh, review of your book, which is the big headline was, do younger or older doctors get better results? And, you know, I think that's the age old question, literally. And I know, again, I'm going to date myself here. You know, when I was growing up watching a little bit of television, you know, Marcus Well BMD was the show, you know, it was the doctor show before Grey's Anatomy and, and ER and all these other super high powered shows. But it had a very stark contrast. You know, Marcus Welby, um, played by, I think it was Robert Graham, was the gray haired, very kind, gentle, experienced doctor. And his young associate, who uh, was played by James Brolin, was this young, good-looking, slick-haired uh, young doctor riding a motorcycle to the office. So tell us a little bit what you found in the research, what it says about you know choosing, if you have that choice, a younger doctor versus an older doctor um, in your care. First of all, let me start by saying you can be old, older, good-looking, and ride a motorcycle to see patients. So. Okay, that's something to uh, that's something to strive for. <laughs> exactly, we're all striving for that. Yeah, exactly. Um, so maybe I'll, I'll start off, and then Chris uh, jump in. But you know, we were interested in this question. It's something that people talk a lot about, but it's hard to get good data on it because you need two things. One is you need a large amount of information about physicians you need to know. You can't just compare 10 physicians who are older no. and 10 physicians who are younger. So no. you need lots of information on physicians. You need lots of information on patients that would allow you to figure out something about their outcomes, you know, something that we care about. Right. And, and a lot of the studies that um, Chris and I and others do, we focus on mortality because that's an outcome that everybody cares about. Uh, and then there's this other problem, which is thorny to solve, which is 
the doctor that you choose isn't random. So if, if you have a lot going on medically and you choose to see a doctor who's older because you believe they have more experience and they'll do a better job for you, then if you observe that those patients have worse outcomes, is it because the doctor was older and less, you know, didn't, you know, wasn't up to date? Or is it because of what chose you as a, what, what made you as a patient choose that doctor? You are already sort of having more difficult uh, uh, issues with the, um, with the medical care. And so the way we solve that problem is by trying to find a situation where people are basically randomized to the type of doctor who they see. And that happens in the emergency room. It also happens in the inpatient setting, which is where we focus. And generally what we find is that if you look at people who by chance are seen by an older internal medicine doctor who focuses on care in the hospital versus a younger doctor, the younger doctors have better outcomes as measured by mortality after hospitalization. And that's the general finding. And there's some important caveats there uh, that kind of illuminate what might be going on. When, when they, so when they dove a little bit deeper into that data to see why this might be the case, they broke up the doctors into various age groups. So doctors in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and then started to look at differences between them that might explain why these older doctors are getting worse outcomes. And what they found was that the older doctors who were maintaining the same levels of clinical activity, seeing similar number of patients as the younger doctors, those older doctors that were staying really active actually didn't show any differences in mortality, which suggests this idea that as long as you're sort of staying limber, seeing patients, uh, you can sort of keep up with with everybody else. It's that use it or lose it type phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of makes intuitive sense. If we think about we're taking care of a patient in the hospital who has some condition we haven't seen in a while, uh, we look it up. We see what is the latest guideline recommendation for this. Is there a new drug that I don't know about that I should be learning about? We stay up to date by taking care of patients. And so it sort of suggested that if you're not taking care of patients, then, well, that's when that age starts to matter. Yeah, those are great points. Um, just I want to point out, though, just so people don't get alarmed, the difference was a little bit razor thin. You know, it was like percentage points, uh, tenths of a percentage point difference um, in the in your grouping of the less than uh, younger than 40-year-old doctor versus the older than 60 year old doctor. So I, I was just looking at that. I mean, again, I, it obviously it does add up to lives lost, uh, but it was fairly close. I think that, you know, it's interesting. You would think that hospitals or maybe even insurance companies would be very interested in this data, but I guess in some ways too, isn't it discriminatory? I mean, it, you know, they wouldn't really, you know, it would cause a lot of problems if they started to kind of regulate and even cause possibly physician shortages. If they said, well, you know, we really want more younger doctors um, caring for, you know, as hospitalists in patients. You know, isn't, isn't that like a tricky area? Yeah, it's very tricky. I mean, as a, as a, you know, I think the question that we most cleanly can answer is if you're a patient and you see a young doc walk in the room who is, you know, doesn't have a lot of experience, should you be concerned? And I think some people would be concerned. In fact, you know, you alluded to earlier the idea of what would we choose if we had to pick somebody for our own family and, you know, if I'm being honest, and I, I recently made a decision like this, I was picking the person who had a lot of years of experience. And it's because I was concerned that a younger person might not have that. And so 
it is true that we find this difference. Uh, it's not a huge difference, but it's measurable. But I think the reassuring finding is that if you have a younger doctor, you, you probably don't need to be too concerned at all. But you're right. Like, What do we do with that? Clearly, we can't lop off half the physicians and say, all right, you're not going to see patients. We don't have the, the ability, nor would that be right for a lot of different reasons. But you're, you're absolutely right about that. But one thing I want to really point out, and this we got to wait now from some of the data and go to reality. And, and both of you with your tremendous training, you know, we all, I went through internal medicine training. I know I think both of you did as well. And, you know, it's interesting. My years during uh, my residency in New York City, I mean, I was doing a lot of procedures. I mean, I was doing a lot of lumbar punctures for meningitis cases. It was actually at the height of the AIDS epidemic. And I was putting in a lot of central lines. And, you know, these are all kind of IVs that go deep into someone's chest and just a lot of procedures. And honestly, after that first year, the, the second, third year, I was like, really, I'm sure like you guys really good at it. And I know that sometimes if you just give you an example, like a patient would come in and maybe he had a private attending and, you know, the private attending is an internist and he would send them to the hospital because we're ruling out meningitis and we'd they'd be in the ER. And here I was 25 years old, actually had some slick hair back then, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and uh, I'm seeing and evaluating the patient. I'm in touch with the attending doctor and I'm saying, OK, I think we need to do a lumbar puncture. And I'm sure the patient maybe had a little second guessing. This guy looks kind of young to be doing this. But yet then the attending would come in and say, let him do it. I haven't done a lumbar puncture in several years. (laughs) So I think what you guys really point out importantly is that volume is important. I mean, the more that you're doing something, so whether it's as a young doctor or, you know, and we'll get to this, a surgeon who's an older doctor, if you're obviously staying very current and doing a lot of cases, I think that's the key thing. You know, one of the really trick of the trade, I want to share this with you. You know, we both all know, and I know even in my hospital, you know, there were some like very famous attendings, you know, the ones that, um, professors that publish papers, you know, do research, and then kind of get a little scant on the clinical care. And a lot of times patients, you know, hear a name and they want, oh, I want him to see me and evaluate me. And what I've learned, again, from my own family members and myself, I like to do, I like to try to find the doctors that do a lot of the work, you know, and typically a lot of these really high profile doctors, since they're so busy lecturing and going places, they have a lot of guys underneath them who are quite good, who they picked to see a lot of, you know, their patient load, right? I know you guys are smiling and I, and and honestly, that's the kind of doctor that I would want to see. And, uh, I'll just share one other last thing because then I'll stop talking. I'll let you guys talk. But I recently, unfortunately, had a prostate surgery. And a bunch of people were telling me to go to this older doctor who was really good, experienced, whatever. And a friend of mine, another doctor, said, oh, there's someone in our hospital. You know, he's also excellent trained. He worked under this top guy at Cornell. And I went to see him. He was in his mid-40s. And he offered a newer procedure that the, you know, those robotics, you know, that wasn't, that the older doctors weren't really familiar with. And thank God everything turned out really well, (laughs) you know. So again, you know, it's experience, it's being up on the latest things. I I think you guys would agree with that regardless of what the stats show. Yeah. I mean, two things come to mind from that, um, Dean. So the first is that, uh, so the person who uh, I, I worked on this first research paper, The Older Versus Younger Doctors. His name is Yusuke Sugawa. He's at UCLA. And he and I and another person had another paper, actually just a couple years ago, where we looked at this question of whether or not you are a, a physician who does a lot of other things, writing papers, mm-hmm. uh, writing grants, administrative roles, all that stuff. 
And again, sort of a large scale data analysis. And what you find there is that the doctors who are doing a lot of that other stuff, which to be honest, would include people like uh, Chris and I, uh, but the outcomes tend to be worse for those mm -hmm. types of doctors than the ones who are, who are kind of thick and thin in the medicine. The second thing though is, you said to me, all right, well, you talked to your colleague and your colleague said, try this doctor. That's another way to think about how to measure quality. Like we measure quality by looking at things like mortality. But to get under the hood, there's so many things that affect the quality of a doctor. Yeah. Looking at health grades or an online form is not probably going to tell you much about a doctor. Right. But wouldn't it be interesting if you could say to your colleague, say, who do you think? You work in this field. Who do you think are the best Absolutely. people to go to? Absolutely. And then looking at who doctors choose for their own care as an indicator of quality. And then seeing how well that maps into outcomes that we would try to measure, like mortality or other things like that. You know, both of you too, I know, I'm sorry, Chris, I've worked at tertiary hospitals. I know, fantastic. You're at, you at Harvard Medical School and um, I was at, at Mass General. And one other thing too, I was just teaching the medical students last week in New York and uh, it was funny because I was saying to them, that, you know, medical school has changed so much, you know, as probably since our days, you know, we sit that, sat there and took written notes, you know, they're all, they get all the slides on the computer. And um, I'm mentioning this because I think it's really important. So during what I do now is they have my presentation before I go in to give the lecture. So they, ha they have my whole lecture. They don't need me to lecture them. But we go in and we go through case reports. Uh, and, you know, questions and they have little like little buzzers to see if they get the right answer, you know, and, and it's a lot of fun. But one of the thing was, which was interesting, was in between during the questions, they were talking to each other saying, oh, I don't know, is it question, is it B or C, whatever too. And back in the day when we were going to medical school, if we were talking in between a lecture, whatever too, you'd be reprimanded or say, you know, whatever. I actually stopped them and I said to them, you know what? This is great. I said, I said, obviously, for those of you who showed up for my lecture, because some of them stayed at home to get a little <laughs> extra sleep, I said, you're getting the extra benefit of talking with your colleagues, which is what is real life in medicine. And, and what I wanted to get to and hear your opinion about is that I think really when pe people don't realize when you do go to a, a, you know, a tertiary academic institution and there are a lot of residents and medical students running around and sometimes it's annoying for the patient, you know, like, oh, the guy's going to practice on me, you know, but literally what they're getting is all of these brains thinking about their case. And sometimes even the lowly medical student or the intern will come up with something like, hey, is this, you know, this sodium doesn't look right. What do you think, you know, to the attending? So um, how much do you think that plays in, you know, maybe if we're going to talk a little bit about community hospital care versus an academic institution? Well, I think what you're describing is a, a part of the whole process, like what it means to be a doctor that is yeah. not particularly well captured by the data that that we would use in the studies like Bobby just described, right? So mm -hmm. we have to keep in mind that what those studies are looking at is sort of average, is the average, right? We're right. saying on average, um, this is what's going on. And what makes up the average? Well, it's the common stuff. It's community-acquired pneumonia and uh, coronary artery disease and right. hip fractures, right? All of those things. But when we're talking about some of these more challenging cases that might not move the average around, mm -hmm. I, I think that's where all of us intuitively as physicians would say that experience is actually really important, right? One of the one yeah. of the reasons I really, and Bapu and I both really enjoy practicing at MGH, even though our research is not, you know, about specific conditions and, you know, translational research, any of that, is because of that you know, sort of academic atmosphere. I have a challenging case. There's a weekly standing meeting where I can bring that case 
to uh, 10, 15 other pulmonologists, one oh. of which probably is the actual smartest doctor in the room <laughs> and can can help me through a tough case, especially as someone who spends more time doing research than he does doing clinical care. We have those systems set up. There's a bit more, and I'm generalizing here as a doctor in his 30s, if I look at you know, my medical school professors, we, have, we were sort of taught, as you were describing, this more team-based atmosphere towards taking care of patients. This is not some super doctor who knows it all and is a one-man, one-woman show. This is a collaborative effort, not just with other physicians too, with, with nurses and, and other clinicians as well. And so I think that is a big piece of it. Um, that gets really hard to study on the large scale. Yeah. I just like, love talking about these issues because I think there's so, so many things that, you know, we reflect upon. And and I've even said this too. I know when I when I get a chance to have like dinner or lunch with some colleagues, you know, because I'm in private practice, you know, I teach a little bit. I don't, I'm not really in the hospital that much. It's very isolating and lonely in private practice. I'm actually fortunate. My wife's in practice with me. So we end up discussing a lot of cases together. So I always tell patients they're lucky they have two Mitchells thinking about their <laughs> cases instead of just one. And she's actually very smart. So it helps. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's a huge advantage. And it's funny, I, I interviewed Lisa Sanders, you know, from the diagnosis yeah. um, column from the New York Times Magazine, and she's over in uh, at Yale. And I, I was saying to her once, what I found really fascinating about her cases, aside from the interest and the way she presents them, is that it takes, in, in so many of those cases, it took many years to make the diagnosis. And then a lot of times it ended up a patient was in a community hospital or just seeing their primary doctor and then ended up going further to an academic institution. And then there was a lot of doctors and sometimes it was an intern or a medical student who was looking things up. So I hope one day I guess AI is gonna be our help. It's not as good as a real human being, but just to bounce ideas off when you know, you're working in isolation, right? I think that's, you know, and there have been papers which look at uh, what happens when patients are treated by individual doctors versus teams, and they look at things like diagnostic accuracy, and it's better when there's two people thinking about a problem than one. And uh, now, if, I think this issue um, doesn't get nearly enough attention uh, in health policy and medicine. You know, we focus on things like cost of care. How much does it cost to see a doctor, get a procedure, get a medication? We focus on things like access. Do people have access uh, via insurance, or is it hard for them to see the doctor? But there's another element here, which is sort of the time and the resource intensity of care. And we have short drifted that enormously, right? Yeah. You cannot make a diagnosis that's complicated in 15 minutes of seeing somebody or 30 minutes. No. Really, you probably need a few hours with that person mm. and with a few other people to come to that diagnosis. And we don't have a mechanism in place that allows for that to occur. And uh, I think that is like one of the biggest problems with medicine. And that's why we see problems or one reason we see problems happening, or at least for complex that's patients. Great. That's a great point, you know, because, you know, it's interesting. I sometimes tell patients to just in my own practice, I'm fortunate that I'm sort of outside of the insurance and I could spend a good, like at least my initial good 30 minutes with a patient. But I tell them too, what's interesting is that, you know, even before I see them, I'm looking over their intake information then I spend time because I want to hear firsthand. I don't want to just see what they have written down. But then, honestly, what I, I find really, to me, it's almost like writing a paper. I sit down and I'm reflecting on all the information I have now because I actually send them my note so they can see my thought process. You know, I'm fortunate. I don't, I don't do like an EMR. I mean, it's, it's typed out and everything, you know, but... 
that you know that's that's what you you want somebody a doctor doing you know to really you know not just you know rote kind of oh you have this this and here's antibiotic you know you especially in the complicated cases um i want to move on because there are some really interesting things in your books so the one other chapter i want to get to it is very much like Freakonomics in medicine. I mean, the chapter about cardiologists being out of town. So I have to ask you this, though. Um, I mean, you did show in your out in your in your chapter, and I'm not giving away too much, but that actually, believe it or not, when I guess the interventional cardiologists were out of town, uh, some of the mortality data patients seemed to be doing better than when the cardiologists were in town. But that being said, if you had a family member that was having a, a heart attack or some issue, would you want all the best cardiologists in New Orleans at a conference? Or um, what, what's your real take on that? I mean, yeah, obviously you so, presented the data, but, you know, what's the reality? <laughs> so this is a really important thing. So just like, so let me recount, recount, of, uh, recount, the, recount the finding. It's basically if you look at people who happen to have a, let's call it for simplicity, a, an acute cardiac problem, during the dates of one of these meetings that cardiologists attend, we find that on average, they have uh, better outcomes. They're more likely to survive hospitalization than, or in even longer periods than that, than if they came in during a different time uh, where those cardiologists would now be in town. So how could that be possible when we think that cardiovascular care is on general, in general good for you? Why is that true? And the reason why is because it depends on who, who, who are the people at the margin. And I will describe that in a story. So take two people. One's a 40-year-old guy who's a contractor. He has chest pain. He gets rushed to the ED, emergency department, and he has a heart attack. And he gets a stent, and he leaves. He does really well in two days. And the other is a 90-year-old woman who has the exact same chest pain. She's got 12 different medical problems, lives in a nursing home, gets brought to the emergency department, has the exact same EKG. Mm. The labs are the same. And she also uh, receives a stent, but then she has a complication from the procedure and she doesn't make it uh, mm. after two weeks. And we see that sort of thing happen all the time. Mm. Now, the nuance here is that if you knew that the procedure was going to be the right procedure for you to have, uh, or if you knew where you sort of stood, then yeah, you would want to be there during the rest of the time, non-cardiology meeting dates, because you might have access to a better person. But what we see in our study is that there's a 30% reduction in the rate of procedure use during the dates of these meetings. Mm. And so it tells us something about how we're sort of prognosticating patients and maybe at some points in the year, we're doing more than we otherwise should. So mm. this is certainly not a rebuke of expertise. Mm. Yeah. I think we can have our cake and eat it too. And the interesting thing is that the docs in the hospital, they seem to figure it out. Because we know that these interventions on average are helpful. So if, if on average we started doing less of them, people would do worse during cardiology meetings. But no, that's not what happens. They actually do better. So what that means is that cardiologists are actually able to pick up those people who are at the margin, who are sort of iffy whether or not they would benefit from a procedure versus not. And I think that's a really important insight because it tells us that that capability, that ability of a doctor to triage if forced to do so, could could be very impactful. And it's just in reality, we're not forced to do so. No one tells a cardiologist, you only have 200 stents to place. They can place as many as they want. Right. And sometimes they do them in areas which are uh, more in the gray. 
You know, that's a good point. That happened actually to my grandmother about 15, 16 years ago. It's when they had actually the balloon angioplasty. She was mm-hmm. 84. She'd had a heart attack about four months before that. She was having chest pain. I think, again, it is probably a little bit of a problem in our healthcare here in the United States is that not much always holds people back from doing things. Um, I mean, I know unfortunately, it might not have been a great outcome anyway. I mean, she was not doing well. She was getting into heart failure. Um, you know, uh, that's why she was admitted again. Um, but so you're saying in that 90 year old case, like, you know, again, obviously with all those meds and, you know, what would be the, you know, the, the risk and which I'm sure all doctors and cardiologists, I mean, they, they want to help people and, you know, but then also you have the family saying, do everything, you know, and, uh, and if nothing's stopping that, like, I don't know about in the British system, maybe they don't allow people to get stents at 90 and they used to not let people get dialysis after 65, you know? So I don't know. I mean, I guess, you know, our system is different. There are some things put in place, but um, there's still a lot of discretion up to the doctor who's put in a tough position. I mean, he has a patient that could be decompensating. He feels like, hey, I should do something, where sometimes doing nothing is maybe more prudent, but it's tough in our system. Yeah, yeah and this kind of gets at this idea that, that Bapu and I have written about before of the art of medicine and evidence-based medicine, they're not mutually exclusive things. That the art, a good doctor, there is an art to applying evidence-based medicine, right? So many, to the extent we even have good randomized controlled trials that tell us what we should do in a patient in a given situation, the generalizability of all of those studies is very limited, right? And so we have to be... um, we have to work in those gray areas and use our experience, use our gut, use those very difficult to measure things to make decisions at the bedside. Uh, and so on the one hand, um, it it can make for problematic things and, and that we see here with the uh, cardiac procedures. But on the other hand, if we didn't do that, if we weren't good at working in those gray zones, uh, how would we practice medicine? Because 95% of what we do is not truly purely evidence-based. There's always some some reason why, well, the trial that kind of suggested we do this doesn't necessarily apply here. So we have to use these artistic measures of of our practice to apply the evidence in the right place at the right time for the right people. Some of us are probably going to be better at doing that than others. Uh, and and that is just one of many reasons why we might start seeing differences in, in care quality across uh, different doctors. Yeah. You know what I would love to see in medical school? I, I Sometimes I tell patients this because sometimes some of the things that I do in my, I was telling you guys, I do like immunology. I also do functional medicine, but I see COVID patients. I see people with chronic fatigue, a whole wide range, very interesting cases. Uh, but sometimes patients say to me, you know, I guess after seeing the doctor, like, why didn't he think of this or that? And it's not that I'm a genius. I, I tell them two things, you know, that I think that defined a little bit my career. I said, one thing which I like to impart to the medical students, because, you know, I don't know about you guys, but when I was going through medical school, also the first couple of years, there was a lot of tests and everything was ABC, you know, or all of the above or none of the above, right? You had to get through all of those tests to be good, but there was always an answer, okay? Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden you get into real life and there's not an answer. It's not, in the, you know, it's not in the book. You know, maybe you could find a journal article, but it's not like you just said, Chris, clear cut. And the other thing I've told patients, I'm very honest with them with some of the treatments that I do and what I got started doing. I say to them, you know, a lot of times I feel like I'm working in the dark. And 
Um, I'm willing to take out my flashlight and shine, you know, in certain areas where I think, you know what, there's more, there's a potential benefit here and the, it, you know, the benefit could outweigh the risks. And, um, you know, and I think that it just, you know, to, to practice medicine, just, you know, on these evidence-based protocols and what the insurance defines, you know, I find very disturbing. And, you know, just one other quick example for the listeners and might interest you guys, like, for example, you know, part of my practice has been allergy for 30 years, but after about seven years of doing allergy treatment and I was doing injections, like I was trained in, and, you know, through my hospital in New York, you know, people were getting anaphylactic reactions from it. And I'm like, whoa, this, what's, what's going on with this? Because I was seeing a much more volume of patients than I saw in the clinic. Mm-hmm. I used to see five patients a day in the clinic. I thought that was a lot. All of a sudden you're in practice, you're seeing 30 people a day, the, the odds go up. Yeah. And I was really fortunate to uh, learn from somebody that was really a pioneer in the field of doing sublingual drops for mm-hmm. immunotherapy. And what really appealed to me was that it was safer, you know, didn't involve an injection, you know, just had all these benefits. And the literature was not yet fully supportive. There was literature over in, in uh, Europe, which was actually quite good. And that's what this person I was working with was based on. And I did it for over 20, 25 years. Now it's becoming more accepted. But back then I was like one of my, uh, one of my heroes, Dean Ornish, you know, out in uh, uh, California, he said, you know, sometimes the pioneers have the arrows sticking out of their back, like in the cartoons, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so anyway, just kind of like supporting what you're saying that, you know, we have to, I think again, because we're going to get to this in a few minutes about, you know, what makes a really top doctor or hopefully really good doctor is not always just going by the book, right? I mean, I know a lot of us, we have to medically legally have, have to watch out for certain things, but it, it's challenging, right? Yeah, let me let me you yeah, know. And so Chris and I, you know, in in the Harvard Business Review, we wrote this piece about the art of medicine, and one we we gave this example, um, and I'll give it to you. I'm curious to see what you think. Mm-hmm. Is yeah. imagine there's three types of doctors. The first type of doctor is someone who does not know the clinical guidelines or the clinical clinical evidence at all. Okay, so he or she, they're going to have some outcomes for their right. patients. The second doctor is the one who knows the guidelines really, really well, and they practice exclusively by the guidelines. What the guidelines say, they do. Right. What the guidelines mm-hmm. do not say, they do not do. Right. That's the second type. Then the third type is a doctor who knows the guidelines, but once in a while, if we were to look at their treatment decisions, we would say, hmm, that's not guideline-based. Mm-hmm. Why are they doing that? Right. And if I were to ask myself, I mean, I'll ask you, which of those three types of doctors do you think will ultimately have the better outcomes? I'll tell you this. We don't know the answer to that question mm-hmm. empirically. True. True. But Chris and my intuition was, you know what? It's the third doctor. Yeah, the C. Because the, the third, <laughs> yeah, C. Because like the third doctor knows the evidence and is intentionally using their training, their expertise to depart from it. And either they're there's, they could be systematically wrong, in which case they would have worse outcomes than the purely guideline adherent doctor. But it's also possible that they do better. And that's the whole purpose in, in, in at least my view of a guidelines. And they're not intended to be a cookbook, right. really a roadmap. Yeah. But if you don't know the roadmap, you don't know what you don't know what the map is, you're going to go the wrong place for sure. Um, but why would you not use experience and education to augment? The roadmap to get to the better 100 percent. you know again 
what, what's interesting, what you guys are pointing out, you know, I've had to sort of incorporate in my career, because again, you know, as I said, I've been trained in infectious disease, immunology, allergy, but I've been doing this functional medicine also for the last 20 years. And whenever I decide to recommend something, a supplement, whatever, again, remember, this is stuff that's usually not rigorously studied. I tend to really rely on uh, other more experienced peers than myself who I really trust. And especially when I hear it from like usually two different sources who I know don't know each other. Because then I'll, you know, I'll just give you a quick example. It's like um, CoQ10 and D-ribose. I interviewed Stephen Sinatra, who, uh, a very well-known cardiologist on the East Coast. He's written a lot of books. Um, and, you know, he was really supportive of like these two supplements, D-ribose and CoQ10 in patients that he saw that had heart failure. You know, so that really struck me. And then, you know, of course, we hear about CoQ10, you know, patients who are on statins because it, you know, gets depleted. And, you know, then again, I heard from another really good source. So I said, you know what, I, I feel pretty comfortable recommending CoQ10 and D-ribose to my patients that have what we call chronic fatigue because it's muscles. So, uh, yeah, I hope I fall into category C because that's, uh, <laughs> you know, because no, we do know because we know, pay, you know doctors that fall into category A, we're like, what are they doing? You know, maybe they do know what they're doing. And, you know, you try to keep an open mind, but they, they feel like they don't have any um, guidelines. And I, I think the other thing, too, which is so important, which I think we would all agree upon is rigorous as best we can evaluation and diagnosis is super important, you know, because you got to know where you are before you start throwing things into the, into the mix. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, one other thing I wanted to ask you about too, this is kind of funny, actually, another area, I don't know if it's a chapter or subsection in the book, you talk about how in Israel in 1983, I was actually a medical student there in 1983, in 1983, the doctors went on strike for four months and they were only providing emergency care. I remember this because I wasn't yet in the clinics. I was in the basic science part. And I, and I saw a lot of my fellow students like, you know, saying, oh, you know, it was just us and one doctor in the whole emergency room. Like they were getting thrown into things because they, you know, they, you know. And uh, I don't know. I just kept them thinking like, wow, this is scary. You know, like what happens if you need like a you know, an appendectomy. I mean, but there was somebody there to do that. But what happened was there was a big backlog if somebody needed, you know, an elective surgery, a hip replacement, you know, or something of that nature. And, you know, unfortunately, because the doctors were extremely underpaid there, <laughs> they were very unhappy. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we've seen nursing strikes here, but not doctor strike. But in your book, again, with the Freakonomics thing, you were like, wow, it didn't seem to really affect the mortality. So again, for the listeners, explain that one, you know, uh, what, should, what should we take away from that? <laughs> I mean, what was interesting about that was, like you said, it was only four months, right? It, okay. We 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 don't know what would happen if, if doctors went on strike for like two years, that probably would have <laughs> yeah. created more problems, right? But four months is, like you said, it, it's enough time for people to sort of acquire a backlog of, of some uh, maybe elective procedures, things yeah. like that. But the really critical stuff, the stuff that was going to kill somebody within hours or days or a couple months, the services were there to take care of them. And, and I think that that strike, and there's actually been similar studies of other similar strikes um, that show that just because the just because there aren't as many doctors around, like more doctors doesn't necessarily mean better outcomes for that blunt outcome of mortality. What's fascinating, though, is if some of these other studies of strikes have actually showed that mortality goes down during the strike, maybe slightly, and that gets at what you mentioned about this back, what 
the, the best guess would be that it, get, it gets at this backlog of elective procedures. Remember, all of these elective procedures, semi-elective procedures carry with them risks. And so if those aren't happening, the bad outcomes that are known, well-established risks of some of those things like a elective procedure, those aren't happening either. Uh, so so it, that could explain why in a handful of studies there's been improvements in mortality. But by and large, this idea that that more and more doctors are around is doesn't necessarily translate to better care, at least for that acute care. You know, the thing is, though, as you both know, too, uh, and I know, what what is concerning is that, again, doctors and nurses, most of the ones that I, I meet are extremely ethical, really have the patient's best um, outcomes in you know in the heart, and but they get overstressed you know because again in these kind of strikes I've seen with the nursing strikes in New York they just have less uh, staff so the people that are actually trying to hold the line are under a lot of you know a lot of duress and it unfortunately reminds me of the joke one of my residents told me once I remember when you, again I'm sure you guys did this too when you were like working in the emergency rooms as like second or third year residents. You know, one of them was telling a story. He said, he goes, make, you know, whatever, try if try not to miss a heart attack. You know, that's like, that's bad, you know? And he was telling the story about how one guy came in, whatever, too, kept on complaining of chest pain and this and that, too. And the and the ER resident kept on evaluating, says, no, you don't. And he kept on, you know, discharging him. And unfortunately, the guy, you know, dropped dead right outside, you know, the emergency room doors. But he was he was facing originally, like, coming back in. They just turned around like, you know, he was going the other direction. <laughs> so, you know, it's, you know, being understaffed or being under a lot of stress, you would think would lead to some negative outcomes. And, and it, probably, it probably does in some settings. It kind of depends on what the patients are there for. But, you know, there's always a risk and trade-off with everything that we do. Yeah. Um, and I think part of the work that, uh, you know, Chris and I and others have done that we talk about in the book is, all right, well, this is an idea. How do we show that this idea might be true? And once we've shown that there's some, it has some legs, now it's really up to the clinical trialists and, and others to figure out, all right, well, who are the types of patients who would benefit from this procedure? And, and or can we figure out other ways to yeah. determine that? Um, but we've sort of shown a spotlight on the problem saying, look, we think credibly that this could be an issue. Yeah. And, and on top of that, these days we have these entire disciplines now that are really robust surrounding like quality improvement, for example. So, and, and these sort of, there's quantitative techniques, there's randomized trials you can do. There's a lot of these qualitative techniques as well that help people really understand a process of, of care, what's, what's actually going on in the hospital. Uh, the, in the book, there's, for example, this study, uh, that uh, uh, Bobby worked on with our colleague, uh, Michael Barnett, looking at what happens to uh, patient outcomes during the weeks of uh, inspections of the hospital mm. uh, by the regulators. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> long story short, patients do better when the regulators are watching them, oh, yeah. or when, when the regulators are watching the hospitals. And it, the broad strokes is, well, the hospitals are doing something different when the regulators inspectors are in town. Mm. But the study doesn't tell us what exactly that is. And to answer what exactly they're doing differently in the hospital, um, what exactly is happening 
at the nurse's station and the conversations between patients and doctors and therapists and social workers, all of those really, really complex factors um, are probably contributing to that effect. And you have to really get in there and get your hands dirty to try to see what exactly might be driving some of these things. Um, When we can answer that question, okay, we do better when we're being watched, when we're being inspected. Why? That's not so easy to answer. Let me ask you guys to get to some of the final topics. Um, And I think you mentioned in here too, really, what makes a top doctor. And what's interesting, because I always find it a little bit distasteful. It's like, you know, they have those Castle and Connolly rankings, you know. And unfortunately, most patients don't, or the public don't really look really carefully. It says underneath, paid advertisements. Like when you see in the back of the New York Times, I think these guys have each paid $25,000 or their hospital to have them listed. I'm not saying they're not good doctors, but I think it's a little bit misleading. Um, of course, people want to know, you know, where did you train? Did you go to an American school? Did you go to a foreign school? You know, again, how much experience you have? What, what's your, again, I, I guess your, you know, the gist of your thoughts on, uh, again, choosing a doctor? Again, if it was for a family member or yourself, um, what would be, I guess, the paramount things that you would, I mean, because I think this would really interest people big time. Yeah. So let me say two things, and then Chris can maybe walk through some of the specific findings that we've done. So one thing is um, I I personally do what it's very difficult for most people to do, but but it it does say something about what might be possible. So when I need to find medical care for a family member, I just ask other doctors, who would you go to? Sure. And I kind of operate under the assumption that they know something that obviously I don't know, or that I wouldn't be able to glean from just looking at where they went to medical school or how many years of experience. Right. Now, that's not accessible to most people, but that doesn't mean that we couldn't create ratings of doctors in that sort of way. They might be gamed and there's biases that would come in, but wouldn't that be interesting to at least think about um, uh, as an option? And then the other thing I think is relevant is, you know, data is really important here. Um, I just took the car to the to the dealer, and uh, the dealer is like, "You need to change the tires. You need to change the spark plugs. You need to do X, Y, and Z." An enormous bill, and I was like, "I have no idea whether this is needed no, or not." We're, right, we're at their it's, mercy. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's complete asymmetry of information. And it's very similar for doctors, right? If you ask a patient, do they like their doctor? Do they think it's a good doctor? Many of them would say yes. Um, but they base that decision in large part on, so what's the dynamic between does a doctor appear to listen? Do they explain things well? They wouldn't know one way or the other whether the doctor gave them the best therapy for them, made the right clinical diagnosis, missed something, because you don't know what you don't know. And here's where I think that over time, we might be able to use data to try and kind of put together that puzzle a little bit better. We figure out what the outcomes are that we care about. We've spent a lot of time thinking about mortality. Well, we can figure out with enough data uh, who are the doctors who have higher mortality. And the, the constant concern is, oh, well, maybe my patients are different. And that's why I have higher mortality for my patients. Maybe they're sicker. Well, that was a difficult thing to account for in the past. We've gotten better and better at being able to account for it. Eventually, I don't think that'll be something that we can say as a defense. Um, quality is ultimately going to be measurable. 
with enough data and a sophisticated strategy. And when that day comes, I think we'll, we'll be in a different place. The only thing that's worrisome with the ranking thing is, you know, as much as people like to have that, is that I know that even, you know, hospitals here, especially in New York, are so big. You know, we have 95, 98% success rate on cardiac bypass surgery and this and that too. And, you know, there's a hospital here on Long Island that's got a super high rating. But from what I understand, they don't take uh, emergency cases like yeah. let's say Columbia Presbyterian does or, you know, so there really has to be what I guess they would call degree of difficulty adjustment, you know, uh, because, again, unfortunately, you know, we, we can imagine that world, too, where doctors or hospitals are saying, you know, we're not taking this really complicated case. It's going to hurt our our rankings, you know, whereas you honestly, as we all know, we want the doctors that take the hardest cases because, the ones that are less hard, they do even better yeah. on, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. yeah, I mean, the reality is if you have rankings, people are going to, that are based on some metric, the incentive is there and people are going to try to work they can that game metric. the system, yeah. Right, so so it is incumbent on the people making the rankings to to minimize their ability to do that. But the reality, I mean, even if you look in like the, in public sector, you know, VA hospitals, they still, that. They're not in, competing in the market, the general marketplace. They still want their measures to look good, right? They still yeah, people everybody, just want to everybody be everybody wants their numbers good, to look good. good yeah. But but I, and I think I agree with everything Bob we just said about you know we the more data we have, the the better we'll be able to measure quality. But I also think some of that subjective experience, and if we look at what the data has already told us, so to come back to some of those studies we mentioned. Uh, it doesn't really matter uh, where whether your doctor um, went to a fancy medical school or didn't train in the U.S. or didn't. Um, but there are some factors that seem to matter. So there's one study that um, Bobby worked on that that found that uh, women hospitalists um, tended to have slightly better mortality compared to men hospitalists. And then if you look at the sort of total body of research surrounding differences between women and men, it does seem like, at least on average, women doctors are spending more time with their patients. And so much of that like subjective experience uh, that that a patient might come away with that where they base whether or not they like their doctor or not is some of that is going to be about time spent. It's going to be about building trust. And we see across other areas, you know, trust is a major issue when we start looking at um, racial disparities in medicine and medical care that, that, you know, there's a lot of mistrust, rightfully so, from some groups based on the history of medicine in this country. And so when you think about, well, time spent, trust, building relationships, that actually comes back to what we were originally talking about, where if you can just sit down and listen to your patient and your patient feels comfortable talking to you, you can probably improve your diagnostic accuracy, improve your treatment accuracy. And so there are some of these subjective things that how do you feel after you saw that doctor that honestly probably do translate into very real differences in outcomes that people care about. You just answered what I was about to say, that the one intangible in this, which is really interesting is, and it's kind of, a, I'm trying to phrase it the right way. It's like, it's how into it is your doctor? 
You know, like I, I think my patients hopefully can see I'm really into their case. And uh, I've had sometimes, you know, patients who've been in practices where a lot of times they're seeing just the nurse practitioner, but she, it could be a, you know, it could be a woman in a lot of the cases. She's really involved and on top of their case. And I think that's something also, I think we would all agree upon that, you know, you could have the best doctor or quote, smartest doctor or most experienced doctor. If he's too distracted, if he just doesn't have time to get all the details, it's, it's going to hurt your outcome. Whereas hopefully you have just as good another doctor or nurse practitioner or someone who's really interested in finding out and you have, a like you said, Chris, a good rapport, I think that is going to translate into a better outcome for the patient for sure. Is there anything, uh, as we're winding up, is there anything in all the work that you guys done, whether you published or unpublished, that really shocked you that you maybe want to share or something that, uh, mm. you know, that you're like, wow, I just can't believe. Uh, no, you know, I, I, I kind of caught you off guard. Uh, everything is shocking to us. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so here was, here was a study that, that surprised both of us, I think, that we did uh, during the pandemic. So we were seeing a, a lot of this resistance um, in various groups to the COVID vaccine. And we wanted to get a try to understand why people might be resistant to the COVID vaccine. And, and my experience, at least, because I was working in these COVID ICUs, right. is occasionally right. we'd have it, farther into the pandemic after vaccines were available, it started to be that everybody I was taking care of was unvaccinated. And then when their family members who might have been unvaccinated also came in, they uh, saw that their family member was like, you know, at death's door on a ventilator in the ICU. And some of them, after talking about it and would, with me sometimes, would would go and get vaccinated after they saw this whole thing. So Babu and I were thinking like, well, we've seen, we're seeing all this death, all of these horrible things happening. If you all over the country, unvaccinated people were seeing horrible things happen to other unvaccinated people, would that, might that motivate people beyond what we experienced to get vaccinated? So we didn't have data on the COVID vaccine, but we did decide to go back and look at, at uh, another politicized vaccine, which was the HPV vaccine. Uh, which came out, I think, in 2011. And what we did was we looked at young boys and girls around the age, so I think nine up through mid-teens, around the age where people are recommended to get the HPV vaccine, and we broke them up by whether their mother had cervical cancer, whether their mother had had a cervical cancer scare, and had had like a cervical biopsy or an abnormal pap mm -hmm. smear, right. um, or whether their mother didn't have any of those things. And what we were expecting to see was that, well, if you as a mother had had cervical cancer, you would make sure to get your child vaccinated against HPV. And what we found was that wasn't the case at all. So the mm -hmm. vaccination rates were the same, regardless of whether these children's mothers had had some of the negative consequences of HPV. Well, and I that, think that yeah. surprised us initially. Uh, but then the more we thought about it, it, it really told us, well, maybe what's driving these vaccination behaviors is a lot more sort of cultural factors, trust factors we were just talking about. Yes. Other things in personal experience might only be a, a little piece of that puzzle. Well, as you know, too, from you said working in the ICUs, I mean, and they showed it on television a lot of times I saw in the news, which was just shocking. I mean, people would go visit their relatives you know, or see that they were in the ICU and still not get vaccinated. Mm -hmm. You know, right. so it's and the that, thinking that was, is shocking. You know, 
Right. You might have thought like, well, the media wow, is showing the all pants of this. Yeah. Right. It should scare you and, and scare people into getting vaccines. But it seems like if we want to extrapolate those findings, that maybe all of those nightly news uh, reports from the intensive care unit weren't necessarily driving people to get vaccinated. It's crazy. Well, gosh, it was such a pleasure to get both of you on the podcast. I'd love to give a handoff uh, to you, Dr. Jenner. Uh, about any of the um, work that you're doing. I know that you also, you have a podcast, uh, the Freakonomics MD podcast, which That's I'm sure right, is yeah. like outstanding. I haven't listened to it yet, but I will. Um, anything else you guys want to let me know that you're working on, Dr. Warsham? Uh, well, the, we have the the Random Acts of Medicine book, but we also have the Random Acts of Medicine Substack, uh, okay. which ha- is, a, is a weekly newsletter that has a lot of um, similar type studies and, and sort of exploration of ideas like we've done today. Terrific. Thank you so much both for taking the time. Thank and you. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Likewise. Likewise.